25. Um, welcome to Achieving the Impossible Strategies for Projects that Seem Unlikely. When I put this together, uh, this session came together last year at Battle Decks. I was sitting at a table with Leo and a mutual friend. I was talking about what I, what I was doing, and he said, oh my gosh, you and Leo got to present these because you have, can't believe what Leo is doing. So um, over the last year, we've been communicating and talking about um, strategies that we've shared in common to do something that, when it's presented to you, seems impossible. Um, in a way, when I look back on the four years of my experience, um, I don't know why I said yes to this job. <laughs> so it, it's been an interesting thing for me to put this together and review. And then to backtrack and look at some of the first documents that we wrote. And now that we can see our success, what were the strategies that we really said, well, what if we do this or let's do this? Um, that really has built the foundation of what we've achieved. So the three of us together, I think, are going to focus more on the strategies involved in what we uh, accomplished rather than just what we accomplished. That's my hope for this. Anyway. My name is Neil Hitch. Um, I am a I have a degree in ar architecture. I have a specialty in the development of historic sites and museums, worked for the Ohio Historical Society for 10 years, uh, moved to the Caribbean to do a large project in the Turks and Caicos Islands, and then at the end of that three-year uh, commitment, we found ourselves looking for an exciting project. I have a, I have a specialty at dealing with museums in crisis. And so I came here to the Imperial Valley Desert Museum. The Imperial Valley College Desert Museum was founded in 1969, destroyed by an earthquake in 1979. The collection was put into temporary storage. At that time, uh, a little before that, there, there was a nonprofit created called the Imperial Valley Desert Museum Society, uh, founded as a 501c3 as a fundraising arm to raise money for the college to build a new museum. I think that in 1984, they probably thought it was going to be a couple years. But as it turned out, they started fundraising. They started construction in 1996. Building was under construction for 11 years. Got our occupancy permit in 2008, at which time the college, who no longer had an archaeology program, no longer had, it's 2008, right? They've invested heavily building a new campus. Um, and they said, thank you we don't want to open the museum. And so it took about two weeks for the Desert Museum Society, two weeks, two years, and the college to work out the legal agreements, but the museum uh, was deeded, the land was deeded to the nonprofit, uh, collection stewardship given to the nonprofit, MOU signed for five years to find somebody to see if they could open the museum. So I was hired January 2011. This is the first article when I got there. This is about two months or six weeks. This is six weeks after I had uh, gotten to the Imperial Valley. And this is the article. 
I sat down with a journalist who's just around, when are you going to open? When are you going to open? And I'm, I'm trying to say there's, we have nothing in the building. Like, it's 10,000 square foot empty building. We have no idea what the collection is. We have an, you know, an uninventoried collection. And then the newspaper, well, you can see the headline, waits to finally open. The next day, I had been here for six weeks. The next day, this was the opinion in the newspaper. And if you look right here, it says, we think it will not take much more for this project to go from being the area's ugly stepchild to officially becoming the public boondoggle. <laughs> and what we were, so what I had stepped into um, is a museum that was known as the museum that had never opened. So it, we had this huge education issue to overcome and that's not even where it starts. So when I interviewed on December 4th, 2010, this was the list of demands of what this job was going to be. What they were doing is looking for someone that would take this museum uh, from nothing to meet federal standards for curation facility, which is 36 CFR 79. If, you've ever, if you have any idea what that is, it's a, it's a little tougher standard than actually accreditation. Um, we had three years to accomplish that, or all artifacts, federal artifacts, in Imperial County were going to be removed. So we had to re-inventory the entire collection, which has been in high at-risk storage for 37 years. We didn't have a single manual policy procedure, not a single museum document. They'd never done, as an institution organization, had never done an education program. We had to fund a permanent exhibit within the three years, fund higher trained staff, open the museum. But the first thing um, I was charged with doing is putting solar panels on the building, which is, again, one of the prerequisites by the federal agency. So a month later, I got to the Imperial Valley. These are our statistics in the Imperial Valley. We have a population that is 97% Hispanic. 84% of the population speaks English as a second language. In December 2010, the month that I had um, interviewed, we, the Imperial County, California was listed as the highest unemployment in the United States, any county in the United States. No culture of museums in the county, zero museum professionals, a severe lack of trust with Native American tribes uh, stemming from um, clean energy projects in the desert. And a collection had been in storage for 37 years, and it's an archaeology museum. Anyone ever been to an archaeology museum? There's a reason. <laughs> so that December, before coming, I, I did a brief one-page uh, strategic plan of what I thought this would take to do and developed a series uh, of strategic points that are things that I had brought with me from the last museum we had developed. The first two of those are my soapbox issues, which is creating viability and building sustainable partnerships. So when we started that first year in 2011, the um, Desert Museum Society had about $80,000 in the bank. Memorandum of understanding with the college that provides $50,000 a year. Halfway through the year, we received a donation from Pattern Energy of $50,000 to build um, our labs out. 
So we started with these goals. The, the first thing I wanted to develop an official strategic plan with community input, institute the We Do Stuff program, find partners, find people, build the interior out of the museum. Uh, now, this is the question you should ask. What is viability? What do I mean when I say viability? So when I develop museums, what I'm looking for is to develop community-based programs and get, place that museum in the community so that the community refuses to see the museum fail. That you become viable to the community as a resource in whatever that means and that the community goes to bat for you. So you're not always pleading for money in that community. The community is pleading for money for you. So the We Do Stuff program um, came out of my interview with a joke with one of the trustees. And what this really worked at is I, the beauty of what happened to me at this location is I'm working now with, a, with a, an 11 person board that didn't care at all what we did. All they wanted to do was open a museum. So there, it was a clean slate for anything we wanted to try and do. So we did a quick assessment of what the strength of the collection, what would work in the community, and uh, developed this program where we thought, well, let's get a research fellow to study our ceramics, which are the best part of the collection. Let's get a traveling exhibit. I wanted to do some kind of exterior uh, adventure type of um, exhibit or an adventure program. Uh, I thought we could do ceramic making or an art program where we made ceramics. Get a visiting artist. Um, then these two ideas of mission and music nights. We have no coll no collections in the building. Nothing in the building. So. The idea was we were going to come out to the museum and drink a lot, it, it was the idea, <laughs> um, by having bands out and then by having stargazing. So as that first year got off, one of the first partnerships we were able to make is with the Bureau of Land Management. They had already grant funded a an intern program where they were bringing, they had three years of funding. They had, first year had already happened before I got there. So they were bringing uh, two archaeology interns in to begin re-inventory, repackaging to the collection. And so we were able to take that program over. Though it's a, all BLM run and paid for, we um, brought them into the museum and then I began managing the two interns uh, through the course of these next two years. That program would eventually develop into a real program that we, a very active intern program that we have at the museum. The, in the last four years, we've had nine interns come through the program. Seven of them have left our museum for full-time employment, either in the museum or the archeology span field. That first summer, we brought a visiting artist in that spent the summer Full disclosure, uh, this was my son. My son came home from college as an architecture student. I made him pilot this project out. We got some kids from the community. We live, the, the 140,000 people in the county museum is in the middle of the desert in a community of about 200 people. So we brought kids up from our small community and spent the summer 
piloting to see if we could make stuff with coiled clay. The very first thing we did within the first three months is install a gift shop. We had priced this out, thought it was going to be six to $8,000, and we got uh, lucky at that I got a call from someone in San Diego who was a museum member. They said, hey, I'm standing in this Borders. Borders is selling all of their cabinets in here for $50 a piece. So the next day we drove to uh, Borders Bookstore in San Diego, and we fitted out, um, I think we got 16 cabinets for under $1,000. So this was another big part of this strategy, is people were coming to the museum because people wanted the museum to be open. But we have no collections in the building, no exhibits in the building. But we did have a shop product that the society had, because the society had operated um, uh, uh, Indian fairs and things, like they had had tables for a number of years. So we were able to do a quick small gift shop. We're in a tiny, tiny thing, only thing, but we've been maintained about $8,000 a year out of this gift shop uh, before anything was in the building. Through the Imperial Valley Community Foundation, we received a very small grant, $1,500, but that grant has sucked them into being a partner now for the last four years. They had a youth grants program. What this grant allowed us to do was pilot that coil clay program and our visiting artist program. And what we did is we began taking collections into high school art rooms um, and then doing uh, teaching the traditional methods used for the last thousand years in California to make ceramics and using these as a step-off point for students to develop other art. And this is my <coughs> president of my board of trustees and my three sons doing our uh, build out of our shop. So the second thing we Im implemented at the museum was a conservation lab. The other sustainable partnership that has been unbelievably successful is we connected with uh, three informal hiking clubs. And these are guys like this guy in a hat sitting here um, that maintained a database of names and he hiked every Sunday uh, as the Imperial Valley Trekkers. And they had this, uh, they would hike to some place in the desert Everyone would pull out a fancy lunch out of their backpack. They would eat lunch and then take a siesta. They would take a nap in the desert, and then they would hike back out. And so we partnered with these people doing this. I uh, wanted the museum to become a clearinghouse for people doing desert activity, and uh, we began hiking every weekend. We live in an amazing place. So Imperial County, California, in the heart of the U-Haul, um, is amazing. This is uh, a picture of the five people in my family hiking on a ridgetop Native American trail. We have the largest collection of intaglias, earthen artwork, anywhere in the world outside of Nag now Nazca, Peru. We have over 300 desert intaglias like this. And we have a 60-mile horizon from the museum, both directions. So we started the new year. Um, that first year was really about 
setting up this viability, getting into the community, taking our programs, since we didn't have anything in the museum, taking those programs out. In 2012, the strategy uh, was make the most of your assets. And part of that is looking around at what are your assets. Big thing that happened this year is we, we, we received our first large mitigation donation from San Diego Gas and Electric, $370,000. That money was very specific set though for development of intern program, put the solar panels on the building, and begin planning visible collections. The goals this second year really were about community engagement and getting the collection curated. Know your assets. So one of the things we had on the build in the uh, at the museum, we have two trailers, and these are trailers sitting in the middle of the desert. They were nasty and they were used for storage. But when I walked through them, I was like, well. You're, you're missing the best asset we have here. That BLM program, one of the problems with that program is you brought people in from outside of the county and you had to house them. So all of the BLM grant, I think almost 80% of that grant went to housing. They rented a house and, and maintained this house in El Centro. So our trailers aren't great, but this was the first project we did. We rehabbed these trailers, made them habitable. And what that allowed us to do is provide staff housing and take advantage of uh, our second asset, which is finding the right staff. So Jessica Brody had come, I was, uh, prior to coming to Imperial Valley, I was in the Turks and Caicos Islands, and Jessica Brody came to do a emergency project there. And so she had been in the Caribbean, had gone for a year to do a project in Australia, and then I knew she was coming back in the United States, had nothing to do. And so I, I called her and said, I have a place to live and a job that doesn't pay anything. And, uh, but it was a good job. And she came out and we treated that collection as if it was an emergency project. So what we did over this year was triaged that collection as if it had been, uh, well, what we did in, in the Turks and Caicos, which was salvage a hurricane damaged collection there. What she did is developed a volunteer program of 53 volunteers. We trained all the 53 volunteers in our past perfect database and like what we were doing and bringing collections in. Uh, we've spent over 6,700 well, 6, volunteer hours. Um, we've touched every artifact in the collection. Every day was like Christmas. You would bring a box in. You can see the boxes up there on the shelves. Collection came in boxes. You had no idea what they were. You would open a box and have to puzzle it out. The artifacts um, had been disassociated from their paper records. So every artifact had to be tracked from its number and then uh, we had to track and find the archive part of that as well. Uh, with volunteers, we did a build out of just some simple walls and began hosting local art. So one of the assets we had is we have a very engaged local art audience but no one supporting them. So what we began to do is working with local artists. This is, um, we hosted uh, seven of the college professors in our county that were doing artwork. And then presented them as if they were artists. So one of the things that we brought to the table was the professionalization of 
just what local people were doing, trying to and and, and supported that as if um, they were a big deal. And what happened with that is our local artists became a big deal. So again, we're a small, tiny, tiny county. I mean, anywhere else it doesn't matter that much. Um, Bernardo, Bernardo, you're going to see here show up again. What happened with that is because we had uh, paid attention, you know, to Bernardo. Um, Bernardo, who works as an artist on both sides of the border, then uh, was able to work with us and work with the Madrasitas. This is a, a traveling exhibit or an exhibit that exists of 300 artists all working in miniature. There's over 500 miniatures in this collection. And this was the first time that it had ever been shown in the United States. So this is a collection of artists in Mexico. It was crowdsourced uh, with people sending in their art. Um, and we were, this was the first um, exhibit that we brought in that everything was in Spanish and uh, was interpreted in Spanish and our opening was all in Spanish. But again, what Bernardo did is all the work to get this across the border, which was a lot of work um, because we were supporting local artists. Gold Fever is wound up being a temporary exhibit up in the building for almost nine months. One of the things that we did is we went out to the community. One of the people in our community said, we really would like you to do karate, which doesn't seem like it has anything to do with our mission, but our mission was to get people in the building. So we took our empty classroom, and for three years we received a grant for a Healthy Lifestyles grant to do karate. This was our most successful youth program we've done at the museum. And the Coil Clay program has become our number one asset where now this program goes into the community at fairs and festivals. We now reach about 1,100 students a year with this program. We do six major festivals in town, in, in, the, in the county, and the artwork now coming out of this program is outstanding. So in the four years that the program's been working, we've had uh, students basically learn a process of ceramics and now are, are producing things that are quite remarkable. This is my other specific goal. Two articles per month. This goes back to viability. I wanted people to see us in the paper all the time. How does that work? This is how it works. I got a job at the paper. <laughs> so what I saw is one of the skills I, one of the skills I had is I can, I can submit articles to the editor which don't have to be uh, edited. His problem was a lot of the people that he was working with, just he had spent too much time on their work. I began writing um, advertorial copy, so where they would sell ads, and what, but the, what this wound up doing is I'm all over the county looking at places tourists would go, um, and then, you, you know, as a historian, it's easy to find, you know where resources are, so you're able to put resources together, which everyone else just couldn't believe, found amazing. Working for the paper allowed me to build contacts and trust so that any time now that we have submitted a uh, press coverage, what we get is really good press coverage. And we've been very successful. We maintained that every two weeks or every two months. As we entered our final year of what I'm going to talk about, um, 
and this was our big year. We completed in 2013, which was the year that we had to come get our approval to curate federal collections. We completed a map, a cap, AAM core documents, and in December of 2013 received our approval. Uh, began piloting field trips. So everyone know the museum assessment program here? So the museum assessment program is a program that you apply to. It's a free program. What you get uh, from AAM is um, a peer review. You get a, a reviewer come to your museum, give you a, a report on your museum. This allows you to fill out what, what you need to achieve. What was unusual about what we did is we did the, the um, map, and we followed that immediately three months later with a cap, which you're not supposed to do, but we were on steroids trying to get this assessment um, with BLM completed. And I wanted these back to back so that what we had is we were pressured to achieve the priorities listed in the map. Uh, one of those things is what we found is that um, the map reviewer came through just that we were getting crazy readings for our um, maintaining uh, humidity in our building and what he he thought that it wasn't our building that it was we had that our units were bad we just bought really bad units and what we were able to do that day is replace all of those units so that the two months later when our cap came that had all been taken care of and then meeting the standards so the American Alliance of Museums core documents verification program sets out five core five core documents, your mission statement, collections management policy, emergency management plan, ethics policy, and an institutional strategic plan. So within this 2013 year, we were, um, became part of this program, one of the, one of the early museums to, to, to finish this program. Um, I assigned each of those documents to a staff person or a volunteer. We rewrote all of our documents, um, and in October, Third, received our uh, verification that our documents met best practice. And this is our 2014. We've had an amazing year. So we, at the end of 2013, we did receive our federal curation. What that did is uh, kicked in some mitigation dollars from some energy projects to build an exhibit. Uh, in August 2013, began designing that exhibit. The relationship with the press um, changed to this crazy thing, which is the entire year that we've been developing the exhibit, Imperial Valley Press has given us the back page of every other Saturday paper. And what we've done is twice a month, we produce an article that comes out about the paper that has kept the, a public buzz about what was coming with the permanent exhibit. And in this, these are pictures from August. This was the design concept for archaeology. This is what we have. What, what you look here is we are the, that archaeology museum end of what we've done. We've tried to place in, in both STEM and Native American culture. Um, 
these rocks that you see to the side, every fake rock in the museum is an actual rock someplace. That blue strip is a, called a rock talk. It's a board that comes out with map and direction and interpretation of a hiking destination so that you can go see that rock and why that rock is important. Which this, this destination is not about the rock, it's about a series of matades which are grinding holes that are um, at this location. And now we are just a museum. Uh, we went from 10,000 square feet of nothing, $80,000 in the bank, a website, and our blog, and a new Twitter account. Uh, we've received great local publicity, received some really nice national publicity. This is an article in uh, AAM uh, Museum Magazine, September 2014. We have 600 fourth graders coming through the building uh, in the last two months. And last year awarded three National Endowment Humanities grants, including the largest single grant to a museum in the state of California. Wow. And that is to build an endowment for permanent staffing. <coughs> this is what my, my treasurer gave me that he wanted you to see uh, just about two days ago. So he's kept track of everything. When we talk about achieving the impossible, when I came to this museum, it was a dream and a chance uh, that we would open this museum. No one thought it was going to be possible in the community. And uh, so he wanted you to know, he's written 748 checks, $1.6 million. This is not staff, this is not salary or anything. This is development money that we have raised and spent in that building. Thank you very much. opening this because it keeps blacking out so just show it to me every once in a while so I know how much time I have left. Can I see if I see it? Yeah. Hi, my name is Jackie Ainley Conley and I'm the museum administrator for the city and county of Broomfield. Um, like Neil, um, I was hired to open a museum. Uh, my pictures aren't showing up. on your, my picture isn't showing up. Shoot, I don't know what just happened. That's all right, well, I'll just keep going. Shoot, all right, well, we'll see how this goes. Do you know what's <laughs> here? Sure. Okay, let's just. Well, Neil's uh, looking at that. I'll just say, um, I too was hired to open a museum um, I also wrote for the local magazine. They contacted me. They were switching to a new format, and they said, um, uh, and if you don't know, this is a move in publications right now, especially because people blog. It's really hard for now print media to get people, to pay people. So they said, hey, we'll give you a, a quarterly article if you'll write it, and I said, sure. Um, and now that was three years ago. They still ask us to do that, but fortunately now I've been able to put that off on a volunteer um, because I like to utilize people with skills and I was really lucky. Um, within six months of uh, my taking my position, the communications director of the city and county that I work for retired. 
And so I asked if she would like to be a volunteer at our museum, and she was very excited to say yes. <laughs> um, so I am in the city and county of Broomfield. Um, wow. Okay, my PowerPoint's not going to match my talk, so. <laughs> um, but um, I'm in the city and county of Broomfield. We are Colorado's newest county, and we are one of the newest counties in the United States. Um, we're 55,000 people, and we were carved out um, uh, 10 years ago. Um, we're in between Denver and Boulder. So I know a lot of people say, well, I used to drive through there, and it was country. It's not anymore. Um, <laughs> And like me, I hope you're hearing a lot of the same messages this week that um, what, what we need to do is create viability, prioritize our greatest needs, build partnerships, make your programming and your events count, make the most of your assets, and meet the standards and use your documents. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, mostly what I'm going to do is illustrate how I did that. So the Broomfield Depot Museum was founded... Um, Oh, is that what I'm doing wrong? No. Well, I'll just start with a, this, at least give you a photo to look at. Um, the Broomfield Depot Museum was founded in 1982. It's housed in the town's original train depot. Um, historically, it was a living in or combination depot. And what that means is in addition to having a waiting room and a ticketing office, it had quarters for a station agent and his family to live there. So we're essentially a historic house museum, um, even though we're a train museum. A little history about the museum, um, about my history with the museum. In 2011, the um, city and county, um, sorry, the museum volunteers asked the city and county of Broomfield for help in sustaining museum operations by um, funding and hiring a museum administrator to manage day-to-day -day operations. Um, I accepted that challenge, <laughs> um, which was a 32-hour-a-week position. And I had a typical job description for a museum employee. Um, I'll just tell you it included cataloging, um, coming up with a cataloging system, and not only that, but actually computers. We had a house phone. That's it. So we were going to eventually catalog the 12,000 things, but we had no computers, no database. Um, I needed to create written policies. I needed to pursue grants and other funding, implement professional preservation standards, recruit, train, and supervise volunteers, develop and present exhibits and educational programs, promote and market the museum, lead special projects, and I was also supposed to network with other museums and professional organizations so that we could meet best practices. And all in 32 hours. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so what you're looking at now is, um, this is the living room. Um, of the house. So what was the depot like? It was a nonprofit museum run in a city-owned building. So essentially the 501c3 sold us the collection for $10. It was artifact rich with 12,000 items, um, most of which were on exhibit. Um, 
as I mentioned, we didn't have a functioning computer. The, net, the um, collection was not stored or safely exhibited. It was um, suffering from all 10 of the agents of deterioration, if you know them. Um, so it, the exhibits didn't make sense. Um, here's our collection space in the basement. Um, which you can clearly see we have some problems with how we're storing things. <laughs> um, the, there's our little bug. We had evidence of several different types of pest infestations over the years. Um, whether they came in, we're not sure, and died on site, or, but we had everything. We had uh, evidence of dermistead beetles, clothes moths, you name it. We had evidence of it. Um, the museum had not been open regularly um, for the past two years. It had only been open by appointment only. At the time I took it over, there was only two volunteers operating the museum. The interior and the exterior needed attention. If you can see, these are actually holes in the back wall of the exterior siding. Um, the pest management guy, and I actually used his words in a grant, so I take a lot of notes when I'm talking to people. He said basically, hey lady, I can't help you with your pest problem if you have holes in the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Which is on an official document, that grant application with the state of Colorado. Um, <laughs> the building was unsafe, problems included the doors were actually screwed shut except for one door. Um, there were holes in the exterior siding. There were dangerous items in the collection. Um, I had red comets, if you know what those are, the tetrachloride. Um, I had all kinds of acids that had eaten away through collection tins. Um, in addition, the museum was cluttered and dirty and we did have some mold in the basement. Um, having the building was moved in 1976, so for those of you who know a little bit about historic preservation, that was made things a little more complicated because why we had a lot of physical integrity, we no longer had site integrity, um, which was problematic for us. So we engaged in frontier museum work. Um, this is actually us. We actually had to clear the basement out so that we could even work in the space. And we know that this is not good practice to just put your things outside. Um, but um, we had to do first things first. And the Cultural Affairs Department, some of my colleagues chipped in. That's actually our admin for our Cultural Affairs Department. Um, miracles happen. This is Emily Lozon. If anybody is here from the Kentucky Historical Society. She is now working for you. You just hired her. She was a museum graduate from George Washington who a week after I took over this museum said, hi, I just read about you in the paper. My husband just moved here. I just graduated from George Washington. Can I volunteer for you? And I was like, oh my god, thank you. <laughs> so um, yeah, so we first had to clean the basement. Um, remove, wash the walls, the carpeting, remove dangerous artifacts, and a couple of dead animals, restretch the carpet, and then we actually had to move everything back in. So we immediately opened 
um, upstairs, even in the condition we were in after we had dusted and cleaned. And that's because we needed to build up credibility. We talk a lot about viability. Um, but before we could even show that we are a viable museum or relevant to the public, which is a big thing we talk about now, um, we needed to um, open up our building and invest in our public regard. We needed the public to trust us. If we're going to be open, um, we needed to be open so you could also come and see what was going on. This was scary for some of the few elder people in the community who had donated artifacts, what's going to go on over there. And so even though as a museum person, I was like, oh my god, I please don't anybody come see what's here. Um, on one hand, the other side, I was like, we have to open. We have to be open every Saturday, 52 Saturdays a year. I went, even if it was a holiday, I opened that building, and which was also important for grants. Um, people don't like to give money to dead, closed museums. So, so our resources, we did, we were very fortunate. We built up a relationship with one of the volunteers who had been there for over 20 years. And she was our institutional memory. Um, Mabel provided a resource um, as a resource to me. She encouraged me, new volunteers. And she provided, um, she provided reassurance to former museum supporters or people in the community. Because she was coming in and out of our building. So when they saw us putting stuff in a mini mobile and a rumor started that we were throwing stuff away, she could say, no, they're just putting it in there so they can do some work. Um, I developed a core group of volunteers quickly, and I was really lucky. I got support from elected officials, city staff, um, and other departments. We are a locally landmark building, and one thing that's great about us is in Colorado, we have a really robust um, historic preservation funding program for, through limited stakes gambling. And as a museum staffer of one, it means I can move really quickly. So um, what we accomplished in four years, um, we stabilized a non-historic foundation, restored the exterior of the building, obtained all the IT equipment we needed to scan and do museum work, computers, laptops, digital cameras, um, a museum quality scanner bed. We purchased Paths Perfect and loaded 40 years of contacts. And I could go on and on, collection, policy, all that. But the thing that I want to talk to you about today, oh, one thing I do want to mention is we did, um, with staff support from the city and myself, we um, reinvigorated that 501c3 that was down to two people. And we helped them turn into a Friends of the Museum organization, which is really important. Um, and we did introduce modest public programming. Um, so the big thing we did was fix the envelope. Um, we know we needed to tackle the building first for health and safety reasons, the good of the collection, to attract volunteers and donors, visitors, and to support our other initiatives. Um, where's your little thing? If you look at this door here in the bottom right photo, that's actually light coming in. This is from the inside of the museum. That's actually light coming through a door. Um, and so our building, we decided, was our most important artifact. Um, it served also as our collection repository. And it really was our greatest visual presence in the community. And that's why we prioritized it. Um, so we were very aggressive. Um, 
In three years, we planned, secured funding, and carried out the first two of the three phases of rehabilitating our building start to finish. Um, and so what that meant was um, in 2012, while I was applying for a state historic fund grant for um, a historic structures assessment and preservation plan, and I asked if you would start passing that around, um, I just want people to see what a historic structures assessment looks like and a preservation plan because we talk about them but people don't always know what they look like. Um, so we hired an architect, a preservation architect to come in, evaluate our building and give us some suggested phases of how we were going to work on the structure. So that was the first thing we did. I got a $15,000 grant for that. and. Um, while I was working on that, I'm really fortunate, my supervisors were applying to the city for a $200,000 capital improvement fund, um, funds for, to be used towards this phasing once it was completed. Um, we did receive the grant um, and the city did approve this $200,000, which part of that is our friends are starting to get going. We're getting in the paper a lot. The city council sees that. Um, and I want to just mention that we talk about using documents within your museum as a strategy, um, your collection policy to justify why you make that decision, you know, why you can't let somebody touch that. Um, we actually use city documents a lot to justify things that we need for the museum. And so in our case, um, my supervisors were able to show that the, the depot was important economically. Now I can see why would a museum that's closed or barely open be important economically? Well, the fact is our building was on almost all phone books, magazine covers, postcards, anything that had to do with our local city celebration. It was used internally and externally in advertisements including economic development material. So you might want to take care of that. <laughs> it also met with several of the city's comprehensive planning goals. So um, we were able to tie that in. So in 2013, once um, the historic structures assessment is still going on, we applied for a grant um, for phase two. We knew that we were going to need phase two. So what we did was we divided, um, taking that HSA, we concentrated, phase one was on the foundation and the basement. Phase two was on the rehabilitation of the upstairs, kind of the more sexy part. The windows, doors, and exterior siding and trim. Um, so we applied to, a to the state historic fund for a grant for that of $94,000. Wow, these, not, these didn't work. Um, so um, the first grant we actually applied for, we were denied. But what was helpful was they gave us comments. And so we applied six months later, and we actually received that $94,000. We knew we were going to have to proceed with the first phase, that foundation phase, no matter what happened, because it was our building and the foundation was starting to fail. Um, what we didn't know is if we would get the upstairs part, the pretty part, and, um, and fortunately we were able to do that. Um, so this is actually a helical pier. We had to have seven put into our walls. 
Um, when I say that we had to stabilize our foundation in our basement, I, I mean we had micro piles, helical piers, all the finishings had to come out. Then this was the upstairs. So what we did was we, we made our plans, collected our money, and then in January of 2014, we closed for eight months and we lined up our phases. I mean, we made it so tight, which actually turned out to be a benefit because when we were working with contractors, we could say the next phase is starting October 1st. And, um, and it put a lot of pressure on them. It was a lot of pressure on us, but it actually turned out to be really good. Um, and so we closed for the foundation, then the upstairs, um, and then we reopened. And that is actually when, after reopening is when we were able to tackle our landscaping that was outside. So this is what it looks like today. So it looks quite different. Okay, well, so um, the last point I just want to make um, while we, oh, and in 2016, we are, we've already applied this year um, for the city, to the city for $50,000 in capital improvement funds, and that will be to replace our roof. And our goal, going back to this photo, is that is a asphalt shingle roof. We do not have a um, restriction in Broomfield. Um, a fire restriction so we're actually going to hopefully be replacing that with um, wood shingle as it was originally constructed so um, building partnerships and making your programs count um, this right here I and I learned this at a ASLH historic um, house museum workshop if you haven't been I highly recommend it, and this has become my mantra. I don't do anything unless I get three benefits out of it. So, um, so for example, this is soon after we opened. We were thinking people might be a little scared because if you didn't notice, we went from bright, from dark red to totally different color scheme, and we were afraid we might get some feedback. So before that even happened, I'm like, we're going to talk about why we picked that pink color and the conservator we used and how she did it. We wrote it up, put it in the magazine, and then we had a workshop. The history and identification of paint, it's more interesting than you think. Because you gotta sell paint is a pretty hard topic to sell. This is advertised on the History Colorado website. So we said we're doing this program and they loved it. They put it on their SHPO's website. Okay, so that's helped me, because that's one of my funders. Um, we found $50 to pay our conservator. She's happy with us now because she's getting a little bit of money because I don't know about you all, but we always get asked to do things for free. And it's not much, but I'm like, if you're driving up here, we'll give you 50 bucks for lunch. Um, and then we had a public program, and then I made all my volunteers go to it. So now when somebody comes to the museum and says, why did you pick that color? They can talk about the microscope and how she took 18 paint chips and um, so there you go. Um, other examples of that were um, a yarn bomb we did after we got our grant. This is when it's still red. We celebrated by having a yarn bombing. Knitting was something people did in the depot while they were waiting for trains so that ties in. Um, it was a way to celebrate, and we did it on April Fool's Day. 
We got the street department because I work for a city to help. So they actually put those massive signs that you see advertising if you're having construction traffic. They actually put them on the road and they said, April Fool's Day, you've been bombed. You've been yarn bombed. Um, and um, this is how successful. Uh, so what we did was we sent this call out to knitters to just come knit at our depot. And then we told them about the yarn bombing, and then the word spread through social media. This is actually the mayor of Westminster, Colorado, the town next to us, which also has about 50,000 people. The mayor came. These are teachers who brought, um, they have a program at our local high school called Crocheting for Our Cause. So there you go. All, you know, and the media attention we got from this, front page Denver Post daily camera. So there you go. Make a bang for your buck. And then the last thing that I'll pass around are more examples of that. Um, our city was going through rebranding. Um, we got a new communications team and they're really into social media, which other departments were afraid of, but I was not afraid of. <laughs> and so they said, we wanna make YouTube videos. And I was like, sure. And so they sent a, um, they hired a contractor who actually took still and video footage over the whole course of the year. Um, and you can go on to it right here, see Broomfield Depot Museum Restoration. Please go, because we keep track of the clicks. And, um, and it was great. I got this amazing video out of this because the city and media team needed somebody to you know, take the plunge. I had nothing to lose. Um, and I shared whatever I had with them. So again, um, they needed, as I mentioned, they were rebranding. Other departments were a little hesitant to come up with a new brand for how they're presented. I didn't have a rack card. So I was like, sure, I'll rebrand myself. Can you make me some rack cards while you're doing that and show me what the brand will look like? <laughs> um, we discovered a few quirky things that there had actually been a Kellogg's cornflake crash Band. A Kellogg's cornflake crash in Broomfield in February 1915, which made this year the 100th anniversary. In our collection, if you can believe this, while we were rifling through stuff, we actually found a recipe for cornflake fried chicken by one of the pioneers of our town. And our friends group needed members. So they said, why don't we celebrate Kellogg's Cornflake Day and we'll give out these recipe cards with how you can become a member on our back, on the back of the card. There you go. We've like covered like our collection, membership for our new friends organization, history, and a giveaway, all of that. So I'm a big proponent of that strategy that I learned. Um, so what's next for us? Um, we're going to engage in the strategic planning process this year. If you had asked me last year, I would have said, I think that should be the first thing that we did. But now I'm really glad we waited because we were more familiar with our building and our collection. Um, we're getting control of our collection and we're going to work on our new roof. Good morning, I'm Leo Goodsell. I'm the director of Historic Westville. Um, I, came on, I came on as the new director in January of 
2006, and it has been a, an interesting ride I've been on since then. Um, unlike Neil and Jackie, I'm not really going to talk about restoration or, or getting exhibits open or, or anything like that. I've got a village I'm moving, so that's what I'm going to talk about. Uh, we'll start with a real brief history. Oh, down. Um, Westville began in 1928 as a project by a personal or by a person named Colonel John West in the city of Jonesboro, Georgia, which is about 20 miles south of Atlanta and about two hours north of my current site. Uh, he ran it until his death in 1961, and his foundation continued it until the collection was moved, purchased and moved to Lumpkin, Georgia, and renamed Historic Westville in his honor. So we're not a Wild West town <laughs> as some people think we are. Uh, we we um, are, are a, a site that honors someone. And this is his museum in Jonesboro. <coughs> oh, I'm sorry. I know it. This is our site currently. Um, when we purchased a collection from Jonesboro, it included a core of six uh, log structures we moved and about 5,000 artifacts that we moved to this site. Then over the next 40 years, it had grown to about 30 structures. And it includes a large uh, two-story courthouse, churches, houses, plantation structures, and a variety of other buildings that make up our, our village. But unfortunately, times have not been good for Westville. And I, so I thought I would just show you what our challenges are by the numbers. The top line, it's, a, it's sort of an erratic line, um, the, but you can see after the big spikes, which was a capital campaign that we did back in 2000 and ended about 2004, and it wasn't really that successful. But what it did do, it grew an endowment for us. But it didn't do any of the other things that we wanted to do on site. But as you can see, that blue line kind of jaggedy going downward. The next line, as you see, is the red line, and that is our mission dollars that we um, are getting. And that line is jaggedy, and it sort of follows the donation line. Uh, the next line is our store, restaurant, and other village sales, which parallels the admission dollar. So it, for us, it's so you know, by every dollar we get in from the gate, we uh, people spend another dollar in a village somewhere. And that last line at the very bottom, the light blue line, is our attendance numbers. And let me show you something even more dramatic. This is what they look like when you put them in this graph. Our peak was about 1989. Um, about 50,000 people. We are down to hovering about 10,000 today. Um, we are in a very unsustainable mode at this point. But we have a pretty large impact area. Um, but unfortunately, the area that's most important to us as museums, the area immediately around us, is the one we get the least number of visitors. Less than 5% of our visitors come from a 25-mile area. And then half our visitors come from within the 50-mile area, which includes Columbus. And it reaches out into Alabama. And 
for those of you who don't know the geography of Georgia and Alabama, this line here is the line that separates the two states. Say Columbus is right on the border of Alabama. Then if we extend it out another 100 miles, we go far into Alabama, picking up Montgomery, which is a significant um, um, city. Uh, but if you took this red pin and you shifted it up to Columbus, and you will see that that bubble then moves into Atlanta. And that's not a number that we've been working with, but it is something that our donors are very impressed with. So, um, and I love to impress them. <laughs> but not only, not only uh, is our attendance dropping, our dollars are dropping, but this is our county population from 1840. And the reason why we chose 1850 as our interpretive period is because right here, 1850 was when we had the most people in our county, about 16,027 people, uh, or 15,027 or something like that. Um, but as you can see, you, know, you kind of go, oh, yeah, well, it's just a sad state for the county as well. And then this number, what's this red thing? Well, in 2010, our Congress, in their great wisdom, decided they were going to count prisoners as part of the population of your county. So that red number represents 1,600 illegal aliens because we have an INS prison in our county. And it alters the demographics of our county greatly because now we are 51% Hispanic in our county. Well, that's not true. You know, we're, they're like 20 Hispanics that are not in prison in the county. And, and so it's, it's, it really dis distorts the, the numbers. So, but suffice to say, our support base has left the area. And they said the last one out, close the door on your way. So that presented a uh, very uh, unfortunate situation for my museum. Oh, I'm sorry. Am I there yet? Let me see. Um, ah, no. I see, I print as presented all these numbers. And then in 2006, shortly after I joined on, my board chair decided she was going to try to fix this problem. So she decided, and she was from Atlanta, uh, my board represented a pretty wide area. We went as far as the coast of, of Georgia to almost the Florida border with board members that represented um, our, or people that represented our board. So she began to talk with donors that we have in Atlanta and some foundations, and they began to introduce her to other people and other people until she finally hit on someone who wanted to come down and visit and say, let's see if we can do something. Uh, that person was the general manager of Stone Mountain, and if any of you have been to Stone Mountain, you'll know it's the state's number one attraction. Well, this is before I really knew but I got this phone call in the fall of 2007, 9 o'clock at night from my board chair. You never want to get a call at night from your board chair. <laughs> well, anyhow, I thought, well, this can't be good. Um, but it turned out it wasn't all that bad. She, she proposed to me the concept of moving our site and wanted my support because it can't happen without the director's support. And so after about an hour of talking, I told her, yes, 
it sounds like something we should explore. But if I'm going to put myself on the, on the, um, on the, on the line there, I need your support and pledge to protect me if things didn't go well, which she did. So we formed a team, and our adventure began. So, but in order for us to proceed, we had to do some due diligence. We had to determine, really, what is our problem before we move forward. We already know that our location is probably bad, and moving is an option that we're considering, but let's talk about it. And through our different studies that we have done, it confirmed what we thought was the case, that our location really was bad, and it should never have been put there in the beginning. And that's what our donors are telling us. It should have never gone there. So once we have concluded that the location was our main problem, we had to decide what to do about it. Do we continue to do the same thing and invest more money into programs and to operations where we currently are, or fix the location issue? As you saw on the charts I gave you, our donor base had disappeared. Our population had disappeared, and our visitors had disappeared. Everybody and our volunteers got old, and the children moved away, and they weren't volunteering for us. So everybody that you need in order to keep your museum sustainable was no longer in our backyard. They had moved away 35 to 150 miles away. So what do you do about it? Well, while we quietly considered and explored the multiple locations in Georgia, including Stone Mountain and other places in Atlanta, Georgia State Park System, and even in Alabama. But unfortunately, and meanwhile, the Columbus newspaper got wind of it, and they ran, um, they ran our proposal in the newspaper. It hit the AP Newswire. You could find the article about us moving in Miami papers, in New York, Minneapolis, and even farther west. It came out before we were ready and before we had confirmed anything. And we had no real plans in place. We were just talking and exploring. But the upside was that the article hit the news. It created a buzz, and the buzz continues today. So that's the upside to it. But because of the news article, we received a, a phone call from the city of Columbus. And it came from the mayor's office. And the word was, we would like to show you some land. Okay? We, we got some land we'd like to show you. That's cheap. That's right. And it's cheap. <laughs> well, anyhow, after... after um, um, some of my board, um, board executive committee and I, we went down to visit with the city. We looked at what their proposal was. Then we went on site. We walked through the property and thought, oh, my God, this is the most beautiful piece of land with so much land in the middle of a city that is empty, waiting for someone to do something. And the city wanted us to do something. It's what? What's wrong with it? 
Oh, well, there's only there's one major problem. Okay, there's a power station right there. All right, it's a Georgia power substation that uh, right here is Fort Benning, and it provides power across here to Fort Benning. It was built in 1941 to support a growing army base preparing for a war. So it's got some history. So we want to tell that story as well from afar. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, after we had talked back and forth, we looked at it. After some negotiation and some gnashing of teeth with my board, we settled on an agreement with the city of Columbus in August of 2013 that we would place Westville here. They would give us this land, about 38 acres total, and that we would build an RV park and campgrounds right here because there is no RV park in the city. The closest one is 20 miles away. And Columbus is like three miles over here, two miles. Less if you fly. And so we saw a huge opportunity. And then finally, the city says, we want you to consider this package too, because right now, nothing is happening with it, and they would like some sort of water recreation to happen. And we thought, well, that, um, that then if is the final protection of our boundary. Nothing can happen while we have it then. And because this is Fort Benning on right, right here, and the river or the creeks separates us from Fort Benning, and this road separates us from Fort Benning, and then the river that separates Alabama is up here. So we found ourselves in a very unique and interesting situation that we thought we should capitalize on. And this is all wetlands along here, right here, and so it can't be developed. Is it time? Oh, okay. Um, so then once we decided to do that, we had to have an interpretive plan developed. Okay. And so the new living history site would have four major components on it, completely different from what we have, um, with a town and a rural and some frontier and some um, native creek area. So that would be our primary area. But how would we pay for that? Because it always comes down to money. We didn't even have a financial plan in place. How are we going to make all this happen? So we had to, we had to launch a capital campaign to support this. Well, we, then we had to hire a development director. And then we had to hire the fundraising council. All this was happening also fast because remember 2013 in the fall we hired we got an MOA with the city of Columbus then in the winter of 2013 we were exploring hiring a development well we hired a development director right away then hired the um, fundraising council right after that and then before the feasibility study was finished in the spring of 2014 we got our first major commitment we hadn't even asked anyone for money yet, but it came forward. And then once the feasibility was studied, uh, was finished, by that fall we had a second commitment, and it was even bigger. We had already passed the requirement that the city placed on us for the transfer of land. So, that's where we are. We're still in the middle of a capital campaign. We're hoping to have it done soon so we can begin this project. 
and begin to move buildings. We have done none of that yet. But we had several challenges and hurdles. One is we had opposition in Lumpkin and Stewart County. They didn't want us to leave. They were doing everything in their power to prevent us from doing that. So there was a major schism that occurred. We even did a public meeting so they can come forward and talk. We can present them, this is our plan, these are our problems, this is why we're doing what we're doing, give us your comments. Almost all the comments were negative because they didn't want us to go, so they found reasons to be negative. And only two offered proposals on doing something to raise money, but it was insufficient to even do a month's worth of operations. Then we had board opposition. Remember, I had a lot of board members from Stewart County. But it took some while to convert them to be supporters, and they did. Um, some of them left the board, and we recruited new board members, and then we continued to develop them. So we have a board that supports the project very well. Um, we already hired fundraising. And then what we're doing now is we're re-engaging the community of Lumpkin. We started with something very simple, and we, our collections manager has boxes of photos without identifications. So we decided to host these photo ID parties. And so we did our first one in Columbus, and it was hugely successful. Not only did we get a lot of photos ID'd, but we started to mend some fences. As long as we didn't talk about the move, they didn't talk about the move, we didn't have a problem. So that's still, that's still a problem, but we're starting to break that down. So then they said, let's do one in Lumpkin. I said, oh my God. Uh, but we did. We hosted it, had the same reaction. Hugely successful. So I see that in time this will, uh, this will be fixed and we'll be able to um, bring those aboard. The next thing is the newspaper. What do we do about the newspaper? Because right now they do nothing but write negative articles about us because we're not giving them information because we can't. We don't know everything yet. So as soon as we're able to announce the public phase of our campaign, then we go into engagement with the newspaper. And my, I've already instructed my interpretive director to engage the newspaper about doing some historical articles and then also keep them posted on what we're doing. And then the final real thing that we're doing is the community engagement of Columbus. We're, we're already negotiating with the city of Columbus to use a building they have vacant near our site to open it up as sort of a welcome center that we'll put our plans in there and they can come in and ask questions. And we'll show everything we have and be completely transparent. Now we won't necessarily tell them all about the money issues, items, but the plans on how the site will be developed and they'll be able to see what we're doing just down the street. So those are things that we're doing as trying to um, engage the, uh, the different audiences we need. But in final, I'd just like to say that, you know, while I'm one of those that do not believe that if you, we move it, it will, they will come, <laughs> or even pay to move it, uh, but if the buzz that we have in Columbus is any indication and that our current um, financial supporters are any indication, then we will be as successful as our, our projections are showing. So that's all I have, and thank you.
If you've been following along on your watch, we have literally talked the entire time that we had. So it is noon right now. Um, if you need to go, please go. What we'll do is take a couple of questions. If you have spe specific questions about anything, there's not, nothing else happening after this. So we'll stay, um, come up. Anyone have questions about the general for all three of us? Again, if you have a specific question, something you want to talk about, we'll do that one-on-one -on -one after. Yes? Yeah, I, uh, the title of the, of the well, I'm not going to say discussion, but the presentation was quite intriguing. Uh, intriguing because it offered, I thought it would offer uh, strategies for dealing with some very uh, tough projects. And what I heard was exactly that, although the, the last presentation uh, pointed out the current situation of where he's going. What what would be interesting to me um, is the strategy to deal with, with tension. So Jackie and Neil, you pointed out almost matter of fact that how your project progressed and the strategies that you use. The piece around viability was awesome. I think progress manifests itself when we really dig into the tension. Mm -hmm. And I didn't hear any of that. For an example, viability in the, speaking to you, Neil, viability in terms of getting the community, and I think I heard you say large percentage, maybe 80% of uh, uh, people of non-European. Non yeah, 97% Hispanic. Right. And uh, what was awesome to hear you say was to get the community to make a case for the museum to stay. So, in my way of thinking, and I'm, I'm a strategist, that requires attention, that requires some education, resistance, and a strategy on how to approach that was what I was listening for. So one of, one of the things that I took away from all three of these um, uh, discussions we've just had, I, th we definitely had that tension. I showed there, within six weeks of me being there, the tension erupted in the paper. I never had a meeting with anyone where they, the first question wasn't, when, when you can open the museum? You know, and I'd, I'd been in the county for six weeks and had no money and nothing in the museum. Um, our strategy for that was to take the little we had into the community. Like we had to get our collections into the classroom. We had to get that coil clay art program into fairs and festivals. Rather than trying to get people into our building, we had to get our, our ideas and plans to them. I think this is exactly um, Jackie, what, what she had done, where she, she says the first thing we had to do was open that building because we have this tension about buildings falling apart, but unless you can open it and have something that has value or added value to the community, and I think probably this is exactly what the um, uh, visitor center, the vacant building that you had talked about at the end, will do for Leo, that it'll provide a space where the tension, because there's an unknown, you don't know what the plan is, that what you have to be able to do is get that plan in front of people. And 100%, I knew our plan was three years in the making. That was the education, saying it's okay to wait. Yeah. I, I have, oh, you, oh, I was going to address that, but is it a... Address it first. It's okay. So about the tension, 
Um, I did have tension, and I'm not sure how much of it came across, but um, so just so to put this in perspective, there's 55,000 people that live in the city and county of Broomfield. It's a small space with a dense population, and only 14% even know we have a museum. So before we even talk about getting viable, we have to like let people know that there's even a museum. And my thing was our building was in such poor shape that we couldn't enter the conversation, in my opinion, we couldn't enter the conversation of what story we want to tell until we had actually stabilized the collection in the building. We were really in emergency. I had to stabilize the collection in the building first, and then we're going to talk about where we're going to go. And there will be tension. I can tell you it's already coming up. I've seen it from the very beginning. Because some people want us to be a social history about railroads, because there's nobody telling that story in Colorado that we have a couple railroad museums that are doing the techno part. You know, everybody wants the cars, but nobody's talking about the social history. And we have people that want us to be about Broomfield history. Right. And we have one building that's only 2,400 square feet. We're the size of a house. And that's a pretty big thing to put into one building if you're still gonna keep historic furniture out. So I can tell you, things will get tense very soon. <laughs> John. So I, I have a two-part question, basically, that either any of you or all of you can answer. What is one piece of, for those of us who have big projects, what is a, a nugget of advice that you can give us for approaching it? And I, the second part of my question is, what is, as the one who will have to tackle it, what is the one character trait, personality trait, um, uh, what, internally, what is the one thing that we need to most have or recognize or, or acquire in order to, to make these projects viable? If that made any sense. One, again, um, my takeaway we, from we'll this... restate the question oh. uh, is what they ask. Yeah. So we ask, what's the kind of one major takeaway of doing a project like this? It, both a piece of advice, a piece of advice mm -hmm. and quality you would need personally. Yeah. I think um, Jackie made this comment about everything needs three benefits, and that is exactly, I was like, that, that is what we do. I've never thought about it in those terms, but everything we do, we have three benefits. If we can't get publicity from it, I don't want to do it. If it doesn't come with a donation or a possible, like, edge, and a donation can be front page on, on the papers worth, you know, five grand. So that's what I would say. Um, personal trait, you got to be willing to work all the time. Yeah, I, I, I concur. Work a lot. Unfortunately, my husband will vouch for that. <laughs> um, I'm very passionate about what I do, um, so that's true. And about the prioritize, and when I mean that, I don't mean like prioritize your day. I really want a strategic plan, but I had a building that was falling apart. So I didn't really like that that was what my priority was, but I had to make it. And I'm not really sure, you know, at first, the city has embraced it now, but that's not really what they wanted to hear either. They wanted me to fix the collection and make the museum look nicer. They didn't want to engage in a $300,000 construction project. And then the last thing I'll say about multi, uh, you know, I, it's another word for it, about making everything count is, you know, when I mean, I mean that everything, like, 
we had to move, I didn't even tell you how hard this was. We actually had to move everything out of the basement into a mini mobile, except for the things that had to go in temperature control. Then everything upstairs had to come downstairs while that stuff was still outside. So like this Tetris game with our stuff, because we had nowhere to put it. But what I did was the people that we hired from the construction money to move our things, we had facilities do some of it with our oversight. And then we hired two local conservators to do our packing. That way things were, even if it meant shit shook outside, like every box got all the numbers on the outside. If it had a number, it was shaked outside. They don't really care that those t people that were $20 an hour are conservatives or just moving men. So I made everything count. If we're gonna move that out of the building, we are not moving dirty things out, so. I would say persistence, 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 and a calm demeanor <laughs> helps a lot. Um, I have not, this project for me has been going on for eight years. I have not lost any sleep over it because I'm, I'm assembling the team that knows what they're doing, and my job is to make sure we have the money to do it. And so I had to assemble a fundraising team in order to do that. Um, so while I worry about the money, I have others worry about the other elements, and they report to me at staff meetings on, okay, what's the project progress on this? The other thing is um, we haven't moved a stick yet. And we have the same issues, too, because I've got 30 structures. They all have artifacts within them. Where do I put all that stuff while we're moving? So, you know, it's all about coordinating all these elements to make it, make it happen. So um, I, I'll, everybody can, you know, eventually you can just log on to westville.org and you can watch our progress in, in sometime soon, I hope. So. Do a time-lapse video. We plan to do that. Okay. We plan to do that. That'll be really interesting to watch. <laughs> One thing I heard from all of your presentations that it seems important is community engagement. Yeah. Because you need the buy-in. We were, and what I, the other alternative uh, title to this, as I was talking to Jackie, would be community engagement on steroids. <laughs> like, because if you look at all of these, the, the timeline is tighter for failure. So you, you don't have time to fail. You don't have time left to fail. Well, the other thing I think we all kind of mentioned, too, is that we all got engaged in a project before we had the plans in place. And we are doing the things that are necessary to keep the doors open and to bring the community together. And that's really, I mean, I still have a lot of plans that we're working on. We won't have finished until a week before we break ground on a new site. So, um, so that's, you know, for us, that's something that's happened with us. It's, you know, it's a project that we, we got into before we had the plans. All right, thank you very much for coming, everyone. If you have specific questions, again, willing to stay as long as you want to talk about it.